When reality slaps you in the face. Will Smith slapping Chris Rock on live television was probably the most truthful 10 minutes anyone in Hollywood or watching at home had seen in five years. It was ugly. It was violent. It was disturbing. It was unforgettable. And it was the truth. A real thing happened that couldn't be scripted. You know who's got the hardest job tonight? Javier Bardem and his wife are both nominated. Now, if she loses, he can't win! (laughs) He is praying that Will Smith wins. Like, please, Lord! Jada, I love you. G.I. Jane 2, can't wait to see it, all right? (laughs) It's, that was a, that was a nice one, okay. I'm out here. Uh oh, Richard. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Will Smith just smacked the shit out of me. You took my name out your fucking mouth. Wow, dude. Yes. It was a G.I. Jane jump. Keep my wife's name out your fucking mouth. No! I'm going to, okay? <laughs> I can, oh, okay. That was a greatest night in the history of television. Okay. There is a reason this okay. uncensored clip of Will Smith slapping Chris Rock has over 90 million views when the Oscar telecast only had 16 million. It's because it was the truth at a time when the left did almost everything they could to obscure it. The Academy was trying so hard to boost its ratings and satisfy the Wolkarati who watched every move they made, every joke told, and every fashion choice. Ever since 2020, people in positions of power have been terrified of losing that power. And the best way to do that is to make Twitter mad with some kind of transgression or to violate an accepted social norm. No writer in 2022 could conceive of anything this dramatic. And if they could, they would not be allowed to write it because it would be too offensive. Only white characters are allowed to be written as bad. Black characters or marginalized groups must always be portrayed as perfect. Yet, there was an event millions witnessed with their own eyes. There was no way to gaslight us over it. No way to memory hole it. It was simply the truth. The Oscar ceremony was produced by a black man, Will Packer. Two of the hosts were black women, Regina Hall and Wanda Sykes. The Best Picture contenders were intersectional and inclusive, Two films directed by women, The Power of the Dog and Coda. One film directed by a black man, King Richard, and one from Japan by an Asian director, Drive My Car. The first film with a predominantly deaf cast took the lead and ultimately won Best Picture. Who could ask for anything more? It seemed clear to me that Will Smith believed he was in the right when he marched on stage and hit Chris Rock. He believed he was still in the right when he sat down and shouted, keep my wife's name out of your effing mouth. He thought the crowd would applaud him, 
they didn't. They fell silent. I did what everyone else was doing. I looked around at the people next to me and said, was that real? A woman sitting behind me said, I have children watching at home. No one really knew what to do after that. You could feel the tension in the room that was filled with well-meaning, mostly white liberals who were in shock at what just happened. But thanks to Chris Rock pulling it together and announcing the next award, the show could go on. His face said it all. He quickly regrouped, having had a lifetime of dealing with bullies and having to hide his pain lest he be bullied even more, and gave out the prize for documentary feature to Questlove's The Summer of Soul or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised. Like everyone else there, I was in shock, but I didn't know it. I was just waiting for the endless ceremony to finally end. Everything that came after the slap was a blur. You might not know it if you are part of the industry, but if you macro out, you will see their social justice voting choices everywhere. People in the future will look back on these awards and see nothing but woked-out Oscar winners. Jessica Chastain won for playing Tammy Faye, who was sympathetic to AIDS patients, LGBTQIA. Jane Campion won for Best Director, A Woman, and an LGBTQIA-themed film. And Best Picture to the first film with a predominantly deaf cast. Best Supporting Actress was the first Afro-Latina openly queer, Ariana DeBose. Sporting actor was Troy Kotzer, the first deaf male actor to win. Coda's director won adapted screenplay with the only white male to win a major award, Kenneth Branagh, winning original screenplay for the film that should have won Best Picture, Belfast. And last but not least, the Best Actor winner was Will Smith, only the fifth black actor to win in the category. As they did their good Puritan parade of deserved winners and waited for their pats on the back to show that real change had occurred, reality crashed through their glass bubble, leaving a mess that would need cleaning up. Hollywood and the Oscars have built for themselves a house of cards that denies reality at every turn to sell a preferred version of it. By the time the Oscars were over, we all just hurried out of the theater as fast as we could. I'm never invited to the Governor's Awards afterwards, so I just found the garage. The valet asked me, how was the show? Well, I said. And he bowed his head. Yeah, I heard about Will Smith. He did not look sympathetic, though. He looked annoyed. Many people would take Smith's side after that night. He was probably one of them. I drank some bourbon when I got home and went to sleep. It wouldn't be until the next day that my friend called me that I realized how shaken up I was by the event. You just don't see that kind of thing at the Oscars. When my friend asked me about it, I could not help but burst into tears. And as I did this, I could hear Twitter scolding me for being a white woman centering myself. Shock is shock, though. You can't police it out of your nervous system. It doesn't really matter how hard people try to make things true that aren't true. Sooner or later, truth bubbles to the surface. The idea that words are harm and no joke can offend a marginalized group is just one of the many bizarre Orwellian delusions we're all forced to accept now. So many people tried to make this about white privilege and anti-black. The Guardian's Teo Barrow says that the Academy has seen worse, and her example of this is John Wayne being restrained from approaching the stage while Sashi and Littlefeather accepted Marlon Brando's awards, she writes. It's also not just about what Smith did, it's where he did it and who was watching. Anyone who has been following these shows can see that Smith is being held to much stricter standards than white men who behave just as badly or even worse in those settings. 
1973, John Wayne had to be restrained by six security guards when he tried to rush the stage and attack Native American actor and activist Sasheen Littlefeather. Littlefeather was on stage to accept the Best Actor Award on behalf of Marlon Brando, who was boycotting the awards in protest at Hollywood's depiction of Native Americans. She has no way of knowing what John Wayne planned to do had he gotten to the stage. She assumed she knew for sure he would attack her, but no one knew what he planned to do. That they restrained John Wayne, a prominent white actor, doesn't occur to Barrow. Imagine if security had tried to restrain Will Smith. She has an audience and a platform and she must give them what they want, which is a way to make white people feel bad for being justifiably horrified at this act of violence. The new cult-like movement that has infected the ruling class in this country is about denying what is real, what you know, what you can see with your own eyes, and replacing it with dogma. As a white person, you aren't really allowed to criticize or dissent. They believe that your whiteness is the source of all of society's problems, that you are born with it, and that you can do nothing else but shut up in the face of something so unequivocal as what Will Smith did to Chris Rock. Why what happened at the Oscars is not something white people need to speak on right away. There is so much nuance and complexity and layers that you will not be able to understand through your white experience without education and listening to specifically black women, which we all know many people don't. So when you share your perspective or your education on what you perceive to have happened last night, it's coming through your white lens, which has you on a place of moral high ground, lacks understanding of black trauma, has such an emphasis on this binary of who is good or who was bad centers violence only actually continues to minimize black women and their pain and most annoyingly continues to center yourself on shit that really just is not your business so just take some time take a minute you don't have to respond right away really try and look at the entire situation before you speak on the shiny easy grab because what you fail to see through your white lens was the actual violence occurring the continued violence that is ableism and that is misogynoir the continued violence that is Watching my white liberal friends shrink back and say nothing because they do not believe it is their place is disgusting to me. It is an illustration of why people don't stand up to bullies. It took Jim Carrey to say what needed to be said. I was sickened. I was sickened by the standing ovation. I felt like Hollywood is just spineless, en masse. And uh, it just, it really felt like, oh, this is a really clear indication that uh, we're not the cool club anymore. Carrie weighing in on Will Smith's Oscar controversy during a new interview with Gail King for CBS Morning. They asked Chris, do you want to file charges? And Chris apparently said, no, he did not. He doesn't want the hassle. I, I'd, have, I'd have announced this morning that I was suing Will for $200 million because that video is going to be there forever. It's going to be ubiquitous. You do not have the right to, to walk up on stage and smack somebody in the face because they said words. After that, more people found the courage to speak out and thus helped the Academy get closer to some kind of action against Smith, but Smith resigned before they could do anything. I'm not someone to stand in moral judgment of others. I see an entire movement now to forgive Will Smith, and honestly, I'm supportive of that as long as it applies across the board. This is not a community that is supportive of forgiveness. It is a community that accuses, condemns, and destroys. When it stops being that way, I will be happy to be more forgiving of Will Smith's remorse and apology. 
The truth is that having the freedom to say what you feel or tell a joke, even if it's an offensive one, probably makes us less violent as a species. As Ben Shapiro puts it, the social compact by which verbiage and violence remain strictly separated is a delicate one. For most of human history, words were treated as punishable by physical response. Dueling was commonplace in societies for centuries. Familiar retaliation for insults was regular, and wars were even fought over verbal slights. But over time, civilized people traded away the privilege of personal use of force in favor of rules. Truly offensive words could sometimes meet with social disapproval, or even ostracization, but certainly not violence. Now we seem to be reversing the trend. The entire theory of microaggressions suggests that if you are offended is because someone has aggressed against you, and aggression requires response. To deny someone's preferred pronouns is now an act of erasure amounting to violence, since a person so slighted might feel damaged in their sense of worth or authenticity. Once we reconnect the severed link between words and violence, civilization will begin to break down. Will Smith went into the Dolby Theater on March 27, thinking it was the night of his life. His family was with him, including his wife Jada, whose battle with alopecia had motivated her, as with all things Will and Jada, to live it out loud and proud by shaving her head. She would not wear a wig. She would not hide that she was struggling with that because that isn't how Will and Jada live. Whatever it is that causes them pain, they wish it away with empowerment. Jada brags about her grandmother introducing her to masturbation at nine and why that was so great. Will brags about how okay he is with Jada's many lovers. In that sort of mindset, how does anyone have a clear sense of right and wrong if nothing is ever wrong because everything is always right? Their self-help claptrap sounded good for a long time. In one night, though, it all came tumbling down like a house of cards, all of it. Will and Jada live, love, laugh out loud. They distort every painful thing into an easily forgiven non-mistake. And when you have no moral line, it is much easier to wade into dangerous waters without realizing it. Every boundary was crossed openly and on television or video. They seemed compelled to just leave nothing private because they had all the answers. They were the enlightened ones. They have it all figured out. So when a joke is made about Jada, the all-knowing, all-seeing, wise love goddess, that was like disrespecting Lord Jesus himself. And that is why Will Smith probably believed the crowd would be with him. His wife seemed to be. And she is all-knowing and all-seeing. She cursed at me in front of... 20 people at this party. She's like, Will, would you shut the f up? Ooh. With Trey sitting on my lap. And I grabbed a newspaper and I said, Bah! <laughs> Can I talk to you in the other room, please? Oh and I was like, right. This joker just hit me on my head with a newspaper. <laughs> we went in the other room and I was like, I said, Jada, this is the deal. I grew up in a household where I watched my father punch my mother in the face. I will not create a house, a space, an interaction with a person where there's profanity and violence. Mm. If you have to talk to me like mm -hmm. that, we can't be together. Wow. We're not going to use any profanity right. in our interactions. We're not going to raise our voice. We're not going to be violent. I can't do it. Yeah. She was like, well, you're not going to be hitting me in my head. <laughs> <laughs> I said, get out. Yeah. She was like, wait, so you would break up with me over some words? I was like, 
Yeah, I just did. <laughs> I was like, we're not cursing. Damn. And her eyes welled up with tears. And she was like, okay. We didn't use wow. any profanity yep. in any we argument. Never raised our we never voice. raised our voices. We took communication courses, yep. all of that. That's beautiful. And never had a violence. You never raised never, your voice. Never, we didn't raise our voices. Back on the planet Earth, though, Chris Rock had no way of knowing whether she had alopecia or not. Assuming he follows every utterance at the red table is wishful thinking. I had no idea she struggled with the condition until after I had made a joke on Twitter about her bald head. I thought it was a fashion choice because she looks great bald and not everyone does. Hi, I'm a comedian, but I also know that making fun of people's bald wives is no laughing matter. A lot of people are of the mind that nothing should be off limits in comedy, but I'm of the mind that one thing should be off limits, and that's making fun of people's bald wives. When your bald wife's thinking about attending a show, she shouldn't have to be worried about whether it's one of those comedians who's gonna make fun of bald wives. Hollywood award shows are a place for celebrating heroes and not a place to make bald wife jokes at the expense of Will Smith's bald wife. You know, it's one thing if your bald wife wants to make bald wife jokes at her own expense, but it's not the comedian's place to decide whether this is a time for those bald wife jokes. When Michael Richards hit the stage of the Laugh Factor, he said some of the worst slurs imaginable, except for making fun of bald wives. Because even Michael Richards knew that bald wife jokes are a line that should not be crossed. If you see a comedian making a bald wife joke at a show, it's up to us to hold that comedian accountable and say, hey, bald wife jokes are not okay. Comedy has rules, like the rule of three, things that are not allowed. Sexism, racism, and bald wife jokes, in that order. In the odd case, after a comedian finishes his or her medical assessment of the audience and finds out that one of the bald wives in the crowd was a bald wife as a result of a fashion statement and not a medical situation, even then I would handle that bald wife joke with extreme caution. If you want to make fun of the fact that someone's bald wife is having sex with his son's friends, then be my guest. But if you want to bring his bald wife's hairdo into the equation, you no longer have my stamp of approval. And despite the fact that edgelords like Chris Rock think that bald wife jokes should be okay, I hope that we can move forward to a bald wife joke free society where comedians come together in unison to say, no, I will not make bald wife jokes. And bald wife jokes are never okay. His joke about Jada looking like Demi Moore and G.I. Jane was funny to those of us old enough to remember that movie. Back then, Moore was a lot like the Smiths are today. She believed in challenging perceptions, living out loud, and bragging constantly about her own empowerment. Especially as she shaved her own head and beefed up her body to win the praises of her peers. In truth, she was mocked for it because she appeared a narcissist of the highest order, like so many icons of the 80s and 90s. This was way before our culture was reordered into oppressed and oppressors, where your status depends on where you land in that paradigm. Back in the 90s, in the last gasp of individualism, personal success and icon status was everything. Now you see some of the relics of that era, trying to cling to their status like poor Madonna. Tom Cruise, ever the nice guy, has to still be the king of Scientology while also clinging to his status as an action hero. Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith were born out of that era, but as black celebrities, they did not expire the way the white ones did. They held on to their status. Empowerment is out, marginalization is in, and in a country with mostly white, mostly straight people, how do they become marginalized? How can they be victims if they just spent decades becoming empowered and living their best lives? That is why there are so many new categories of gender, sexuality, and everything else, even size acceptance. 
Anyone can be in an oppressed or marginalized group if they fit into these or one of the many other categories. That is how you get to words being harm, where an offensive joke about a perceived or self-proclaimed marginalized group is worse than a slap across the face on live television. Laughing relieves tension. Laughter brings us together. Laughter is a way to connect even if we don't speak the same language. We understand what laughing means. That is why it is so important to preserve the freedom to be funny, even if it means you might offend some people. It occurred to me after March 27th that much of an entire generation might not understand what comedy is for. They might not understand what jokes are supposed to do. If you dissect them bit by bit, you can find so much wrong with them. But the whole point of a joke is not to do that. It's to startle you into laughter so you can release some of the built-up pressure inside. And it's true that not everyone finds the same things funny, but it should not be the job of the comedians or the comedy shows to make sure their humor is for everyone. Late-night comedy, so-called, with Jimmy Kimmel, Stephen Colbert, and John Oliver isn't funny, not in the slightest bit. It's a magic mirror for the left, which only finds making fun of Trump supporters and Republicans funny. But that isn't funny. Funny would be making fun of the self-important, self-serious, sanctimonious, uptight left. They hardly ever do it because they are too afraid. That we don't have humor in our lives that is allowed to be free is very likely why it seems like we slip further into collective madness every day. That is why Ricky Gervais's Golden Globe video has more views than any Oscar ceremony at any time in their history. Apple roared into the the TV game with a morning show, a superb drama, yeah. A superb drama about the importance of dignity and doing the right thing, made by a company that runs sweatshops in China. So, well, you say you're woke, but the companies you work for, I mean, unbelievable. Apple, Amazon, Disney. If ISIS started a streaming service, you'd call your agent, wouldn't you? So, if you do win an award tonight, don't use it as a, a platform to make a political speech, right? You're in no position to lecture the public about anything. You know nothing about the real world. Most of you spent less time in school than Greta Thunberg. So, if you win, right, come up, accept your little award, thank your agent and your God. And so, Ricky Gervais is the only comedian who should ever host the Oscars from now on. They need someone who is unafraid of them and the morality police of Twitter. It is the only way to get back any sort of sanity and freedom. In case you are wondering why Trump won in 2016 and why he continues to resonate, draw crowds and is currently being pulled to beat Biden, this is why. By 2016, the left had already turned America into a country where speech, language, and every other thing was heavily monitored. That is why Trump was such a force to be reckoned with. He not only challenged the rules, he spit in the face of them. There is power in that, but there is even more power right now than there ever has been because we have become disconnected from the truth on the left. It has simply been nonstop gaslighting by the media to force people to believe what they want to be true. The Democrats are trapped under the thumb of Twitter. Many of them are simply resigning rather than face election season where they're about to get steamrolled. The majority in this country can't stand what's happening to it at the hands of the left. Even if, when you bring this up, they will start melting down over democracy itself on January 6th. 
As usual, they are digging in the wrong place and can't see what's about to happen to them. It begins and ends with how a culture polices humor. Imagine any cult. Think about what kinds of jokes would be allowed. Now think about Putin or Xi or Stalin or Hitler and imagine what kind of jokes would be allowed under their reign. Now you see why it has become so dangerous for our country, a country that went through a bloody revolution for the right to tell offensive jokes. I don't like words that hide the truth. I don't like words that conceal reality. I don't like euphemisms or euphemistic language. And American English is loaded with euphemisms because Americans have a lot of trouble dealing with reality. Americans have trouble facing the truth. So they invent the kind of a soft language to protect themselves from it. And it gets worse with every generation. For some reason, it just keeps getting worse. I'll give you an example of that. There's a condition in combat most people know about it. It's when a fighting person's nervous system has been stressed to its absolute peak and maximum, can't take any more input. The nervous system has either snapped or is about to snap. In the First World War, that condition was called shell shock. Simple, honest, direct language. Two syllables, shell shock. Almost sounds like the guns themselves. That was 70 years ago. Then a whole generation went by and the Second World War came along and we, the very same combat condition was called battle fatigue. Four syllables now, takes a little longer to say, doesn't seem to hurt as much. Fatigue is a nicer word than shock. Shell shock, battle fatigue. <laughs> then we had the war in Korea, 1950. Madison Avenue was riding high by that time and the very same combat condition was called operational exhaustion. <laughs> hey, we're up to eight syllables now. And the humanity has been squeezed completely out of the phrase. It's totally sterile now. Operational exhaustion. Sounds like something that might happen to your car. <laughs> then, of course, came the war in Vietnam, which has only been over for about 16 or 17 years. And thanks to the lies and deceit surrounding that war, I guess it's no surprise that the very same condition was called post-traumatic stress disorder. Still eight syllables, but we've added a hyphen. And the pain is completely buried under jargon. Post-traumatic stress disorder. I'll bet you if we'd have still been calling it shell shock, some of those Vietnam veterans might have gotten the attention they needed at the time. Words are harm, words are violence, silence is violence, criticizing the government, questioning the vaccine or masks, refusing to use the right pronouns, are all the ways the left is sabotaging itself by thinking this country is ready to become Tumblr circa 2013. No society can survive if jokes are so bad they inspire one man to walk up to another man and slap him across the face. We have to get back to a place where we can survive an offensive or insulting joke. We have to allow parents to talk openly about what worries them in their children's classrooms. We have to be able to debate things without fear of being destroyed or fired. We have to fight back against big tech oligarchs policing the citizenry, no matter what it takes. We have to find a way back to the truth. And the best way to do that is to let comedians, writers, artists, and journalists out of their cages and let freedom ring. Otherwise, this country is going to fall into a kind of Orwellian nightmare that will destroy it. We might be living through the end of the era of great movies and the Oscars. We might be seeing the end of great books. All of them will bear the mark of their time. 
showing a creative class that was so afraid of criticism they stopped telling good stories and people stopped watching them. When the Hayes Code was implemented in the 1930s, it cleaned up Hollywood movies for two decades. The films made back then were covered with a veneer of phoniness. Anyone watching them today will think, why are they all acting and talking like that? Why do they never show toilets or pregnant women? That's because it was the last time we lived through an era like this one. And just like those movies are easily recognizable for their time, so too will everything produced now and for the foreseeable future be easy to recognize as the woke era. It took 20 years for Hollywood to break away from the Hayes Code and tell more naturalistic stories. I imagine we're about halfway there now. Until then, comedians and writers will have to find subversive ways of getting their messages out, like Stanley Kubrick did in Lolita or Hitchcock did in Psycho. I would like to think the slap at the Oscars was a hinge moment, but I think it's more likely it's just the beginning of what is going to be a very dark time in our history. Like all of us on Oscar night, however, we don't have much choice but to make it through another day. There is always hot coffee in a sunrise. We're alive, and that's all that matters in the end. Thanks for listening to my sub stack, sashastone.substack.com.